Hello everyone, this is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. Alright, so welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do, where we're discussing um, how to get, you know, genuinely behind Joe Biden for president. Uh, obviously, we've been living through the chaos of the, tr- the Trump presidency for you know, three and a half years going on 57 years. And I think that like, you know, the chaos of these, you know, the A, just the general policy this administration kind of brought into focus, like just how important it is who actually is in there. Um, And, you know, the twin horrors of COVID and this kind of racial reawakening have even brought into sharper focus, like what needs to happen when the new person does get in there. And so I think that a lot of us are confronting our own misgivings with Joe Biden, a candidate many of us did not support initially and who in many ways represents all that has gone wrong. Uh, I mean, prior to Trump, I mean, he's redefined wrong. But um, so I thought it would be healthy for us to kind of get together and kind of talk about kind of how we got here, you know, what Joe has meant to us and what it means to kind of um, make sure that he is our next president and kind of what that's going to take. So, um, oops, excuse me. Teddy will edit that out. Um, so I'm Trey, I'm the host, and I have before me Brandy Bones and Sarah Ullman. These are two of my dearest friends and also very, very smart, um, uncompromising on their values, I think is another thing that they share. And so I think it's important for people of that, who have important values to explain how they can get behind a candidate that is not necessarily in alignment with those values. So um, why don't we start with you guys just kind of giving a short intro of who you are, what you're about. Let's start with Brandy. Sure. Thanks, Trey, for having me. I work in uh, disaster recovery and I'm an urban planner and I've spent my career working in affordable housing and urban revitalization and neighborhood revitalization issues. And I also care very deeply about changing our very corrupt political system and reforming it from a systemic uh, level so that we get out of the party system and we have opportunities to really make real change happen that is popularly supported by everybody in this country for the most part. And Brandy uh, was based in Philadelphia, her hometown, and it, you know my dad's hometown too, uh, and is now based in Detroit. So I think that yes. was also important to mention. Yes, I just uh, and, moved from Philly to Detroit in September, so I'm still learning. From cold to colder. I know. <laughs> God bless you. Uh, and we also have Sarah. Hello. Uh, thank you also for having me, Trey. I'm a, I've been an avid uh, watcher of what we've gone through, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Um, I am an activist. I sit at the center, the intersection of film and politics, specifically gun violence prevention. I run an organization called One Vote at a Time, and we make in-kind campaign videos for candidates that will agree to support gun safety legislation. So we're filmmakers offering our services for free to down-ballot candidates, which are um, so often overlooked and underfunded, and it's our mission to get people elected at the local and state levels that will change gun laws. Right. And it's important to know that also your, you know, your organization works all over the country. So you have a sense of kind of what these different mentalities and kind of priorities are. Because sometimes, you know, we both live in L.A. um, And I've lived in California. I was born and raised here and I've lived here most of my life, you know, besides a stint on the East Coast. So the whole middle 
and the South are places that like, I don't understand. Like, aren't they watching the same thing I'm seeing? Like, how can they even interpret it any differently than me? And I think that that's kind of like the blind spot that, you know, screwed us over last time is the kind of arrogance of assuming that people have the same priorities and understandings. Um, and that also came into play with Joe Biden kind of blindsiding a lot of us. Like, how did this even happen? Um, so I think a good place to start is not with kind of the current scenario and why it's so important to get behind him, but like, who is Joe Biden? And kind of like how responsible, it, you know, we see all these problems that are not new. They're kind of the manifestations of decades of policies and decision-making from Democrats as well as Republicans. Um, and Biden, who's been around for decades in these institutions is, and who's been leading them, I think is in many ways um, an architect of our current reality. And so kind of like, what is the, who wants to start speaking to that? Brandy, perhaps? Yeah, I think that part of the issue with Joe Biden is part of what makes Trump attractive to a lot of um, voters is that he has been entrenched in the system for decades. And he has been the archetype of a lot of the legacy policies that are now, as we are kind of having this grand reckoning, realizing we're part of the problems of where we're at, you know, from the criminal justice system that he's created, you know, and it, he was a big architect of creating that. And the way we have our credit card industry and banking industry set up, I mean, he is kind of the definition of a, de a politician that has been bought and sold in a lot of ways by corporate donors. And so um, there's an issue with him being so entrenched. And I think that's why he's problematic. And we can get into like all of the details of kind of like what the, some of those policies have led to and why even Trump became attractive in 2016 and ultimately got elected because he represented to many people something new that they wanted that was, you know, to so-called drain the swamp. Um, but I think that we have to, and I wish that he would begin to recognize how he has played a part in so much of what's going on and playing out now and how much he needs to change to recognize where we have come as a country. And part of the problem has also been that in some ways he's been a leader in um, creating a lot of these policies. You know, he kind of was a chief architect of the mass incarceration system that we now have, but he was also reflecting what the popular opinion at that time was. And so, you know, just like the Supreme Court shows that it can shift as time goes by to reflect what the larger opinions of the mass population is saying, I think that he can probably get to a place where he recognizes his own guilt in creating all of this, um, these problems and these systems, and that that's where we need to get with him. Yeah, I, I think that was beautifully said and explained, I would add to it that I think particularly, um, in addition to what you've said, um, I've also been really horrified by uh, the way that he treated Anita Hill um, and the reckoning that needs to happen on about his own personal conduct um, with women, the places where he puts his hands, the language that he uses to describe and talk about women, um, in some ways is sort of, uh, in many ways is reflective of this era that he came up in, you know? And I think that the, the reason why it was so disappointing to me when he became our nominee was that it felt like this is, um, <clears throat> it felt like 
Trump is such an extreme that I was ready for us to swing the other way to the, um, I guess I'm, I'm reversing it, but I was ready to swing all the way left um, and ready for some really profound change. And I think that um, it feels like a lost opportunity. I think it's a grieving sort of what could have been with a more progressive candidate is, is also something that, um, you know, that, that I myself have been coming to terms with. But I do think that what you said, Brandy, about um, reckoning and, and where we need to get with him, I do think that he is in many, many ways capable of growth and capable of receiving feedback um, in a way that that like orange bone clock, like occupying the White House is just not. And, uh, Trump. Yeah, that's it. He's barely a human. I mean, or maybe he's the most human, right? Like he's like maybe like represents all the evils and all the. But anyways, um, I he's like that. He's like when like Volt, like when I guess it was Harry Potter, Deathly Hollows Part Two, where like <laughs> Harry emerges in this like glowing train station. There's like this gnarled like Voldemort baby. Like if that thing is a human, then like that's what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just, I mean, that is not a being, that is not a person that's capable of growth or receiving feedback or being pushed in any particular direction. And, you know, for all his, like, serious and profound flaws as a person, as a candidate, as a person in public life for the harm that he has caused, I do think that Joe Biden is capable of growth, um, which is better, is better than the Which ultimate. miraculous by comparison. And I think mm-hmm. that that's like, and that's, you know, and we'll get into this later, but like, I want to, something you said that really struck me is that like, it does feel like such a, a loss of like a different future. It's like to have these be our options for many of us, almost like damns us to like more of the same, almost in the best case scenario. And so I think that maybe that's not true. Maybe I think that because he is able to receive he's able to be influenced, you know, he's able to kind of repopulate the people that make decisions. Um, We've gotten so used to the worst that it's almost like I forget that like there used to be at least like at a baseline competence Mm -hmm. in our federal system, at least competence wasn't like uh, avoided at all costs, you know? So, and I think that like, you know, in terms of candidate Biden, um, you know, because we're talking, we just talked about his history. And I think it's also important to note that, like, he wasn't a compelling candidate. You know, I mean, it was hard for me to get behind someone. And, like, I myself questioned the conventional wisdom that he was the most electable. I actually didn't even see how that could be possible um, in terms of, like, compelling the people we need to get out there and be excited to, to vote and be excited. Um, and I guess we were wrong because, like, that's who got the most support. I don't need, how do we, what are we feeling about kind of like, what is our lingering resentment around kind of like the primary election? I mean, to the extent that it's concluded. I will say that, um, it, you know, to your earlier point in my travels around the country, sort of talking to different candidates and different types of people, um, different geographic areas. Um, I think Joe Biden for many people represents like safety or like represents like some sort of return to um, return to normalcy and people are so desperate for it. It's not what I see. It's not my opinion, but um, I do think that it's undeniable that 
black voters in South Carolina chose him. And like, and, and, you know, I think that uh, it's important to recognize that like a community, a community of color, no community is a monolith. And that's really important to acknowledge, but this particular community um, voted that way overwhelmingly for him. And I think it's worthy of a look at why they felt that he was their, their best choice and their best option and whether it's because they thought he was the most electable so they thought he was the safest choice or for some other reason i think it's like worthy of a look and worthy of consideration i mean i think that a lot of people assume that these you know these black southern voters became like game theorists they're like i know what would be ideal but like what are you white people going to do and i feel like i know that more than i even know that you know that so i think there's a lot of that going on because i mean it was very clear that they had a very strong opinion about who they wanted to represent them. And it wasn't the people who had the policies that you could argue would best help them. So there is a lot to unpack there. And uh, it's, it's, we got bigger fish to fry than unpacking it, honestly, um, because we have to now kind of steamroll their choice into office. Brandy, you were going to say something. No, and I mean, I think we also need to recognize that not everybody in this country is also ready for some of the drastic systemic changes that Bernie Sanders does represent or Elizabeth Warren did represent as well. I mean, so there is an entire, and I've traveled all over the country as well and worked in a lot of communities. And I think that he is, there is something about him being a known uh, person that, and that, and Estimate the legacy of the eight years of Obama and the kind of uh, comfort that we all take, I think, in those eight years and that he was accepted and part of, and he's very much a part of that legacy as well. So I think that's also a big piece of it. Yeah. And let's talk about, I mean, that, there's something to that, right? So it's like he yet, I mean, I think most people in America became aware of Joe Biden as a vice president, not as a senator. Not mm -hmm. as, I mean, maybe, you know, for a certain generation, the Anita Hill hearings, you know, was their first, like, kind of really good look at him. But I think that that is also kind of like, for a lot of us, it's like you're coasting on leadership that, like, wasn't yours. Like, you weren't, a, to me, he wasn't a vice president that you had articulated a huge vision. He was just kind of like, Uncle Joe, like, you know, making sure that things are going to do crazy. And, you know, and I, I think empathy is maybe the one thing that he can claim. Um, yeah. ownership of in terms of being able to speak to his kind of personal story. You know, he's had many personal losses that I think allow him to kind of see into people's pain a bit more in a non-cynical way. I'll add that I do feel like he hasn't used it in a way that I thought was like gross. You mm -hmm. know, a lot of people have suffered and I think it's, it's, it's kind of attractive to use that suffering to kind of like receive empathy or kind of like, you know, a break from people who may not be willing to give it to you. And I don't feel like given what he's experienced that he's fallen into that. So I will yeah. give him that credit at least. Um, but I think that also, you know, when I hear Obama speak nowadays, I'm like, those days are over, you know? And that's like, I, and it's, that's been hard for me to grapple with too. I mean, I think that Obama represents like a, a way, a time that he's gone you know, if it ever was here. And now it's like even more clear that we need such drastic change. And I think that had the, had the primary begun now, I wonder kind of what the outcomes would have been. I think that maybe because of the primaries, people were so disillusioned in some way. Do you guys agree? I think we might have a different outcome of the, if it had happened now. I do the primary. Yeah. I definitely, it just too much has changed since the, you know, 
South Carolina primary that I think it could have been a very different outcome. But the, but also the playing field was huge and the Democratic Party couldn't get behind one candidate. I mean, and that diffuses, you know, putting, backing some one person and, and Biden was endorsed. So I think, I mean, who knows, you know, that's like kind of speculation, but I think it could have been very different. I don't know what the candidate would have been. What do you think, Sarah? Well, I, I will say I want to, um, there's one thread that, that is really interesting, Trey, that I that you talked about that I, I want to just pick up on, um, which is the his role in the Obama administration. And I think that he um, he actually did have a portfolio of policy that he worked on um, and that he advanced. Um, but the reason you didn't see him. Uh, or, or that you don't have the impression that he had this big portfolio was because he, in my opinion, was a good vice president and deferred to his leader to, to be the forward face and to lead on men, much of it. Um, I, I certainly don't agree with, you know, every decision that was made there, but I do think that it's important to um, acknowledge that like work was work was done there. Um, and like he did have a, a, a trusted role in that White House. Um, not that that changes anything that we've said before, but um, but I think it's part of it is also that he w worked in partnership with, in service of the nation's first black president. And like that is, you know, has a lot of meaning to, I think, voters who look at the moment that we're in, some voters who look at the moment that we're in right now and and see that he was able to, um, you know, be second in command to a black man. And that's not something you can say for everyone. That's not nothing. <laughs> that's not nothing, you know? And like, dear God, I can't believe that we're still in the place where we're saying that it's not nothing. But it's not nothing. And I, I for all of the problems and for all of the flaws, I think people see, some people see that as, as an important reason why they might trust him, you know? And um, I agree with you both that I think it would be a very different primary if it happened, um, happened today, for sure. There's one aspect of this, and I think that we can kind of then kind of bring ourselves to the present. And maybe this is just me who feels this way, because like when I think about an effective leader, I think of someone who kind of like is able to cultivate, you know, a succession plan, someone who knows when it's time to step up and knows when it's time to step aside and allow the changes that need to happen, happen. And I was struck by Biden, you know, right out the gate being like, I'm what America needs. Like, I'm the only one who's electable. Like, I am, you know, like, I, I, I think he genuinely believed it somehow, or he's been told it enough times that he internalized it. But I'm like how could we possibly be in a place where like what Joe Biden has to offer uh, is the best thing for America? And like, that's really what really made me not support him. Cause I'm like, he is that there's ego there and there's probably like conventional wisdom there, but I'm like, how can you look at what America is composed of and the, in the issues we face and see yourself as the best solution? So, I mean, what do you think of that? I mean, maybe he's right. And like, I mean, maybe I resent the fact that that's true, but I really was like, what a world where Biden would have gotten behind some other young candidate. And maybe none of the ones that we were offered, but like someone mm -hmm. that like maybe represented what he believed in, but was like a much better vehicle for it. Like, why didn't he just do that? 
He is a politician, but I mean, yeah, he is a politician who's been trying to become president a lot of times. He, that is his goal. Right. But I think to offer, yeah, a contrary view, I actually don't think he's far off from being kind of maybe accurate in his assessment that he was probably the most electable candidate. And that is in large part because what we haven't recognized maybe is the potential backlash we would have seen from the entrenched power system if somebody like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren had won the ticket. We very much, if they had won the primary, we may have very much seen a lot more funding to the Trump campaign or other ways that that the power system would have been further entrenched because they are trying to challenge it. And Joe Biden represents a safer alternative to more of a slower transition of those changes than, than Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and other candidates offered. So I think in terms of, rather than talk about it as electability in terms of like who's going to get behind them as individuals with one vote, it's about electability in terms of whose money is going to go where and how that might go. And I think that's actually a more interesting conversation about how our political system works in reality, um, because that's what enables certain candidates to actually get a podium on which to be a participant in the democratic debates um, and actually be you know, a force. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that we get only a few options in our political system and that they don't often represent the actual popular will of what people want and want to see and what they need for their own like communities and families. It like breaks my heart to, (laughs) you know, like, like if there was ever a time for an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders, it feels like this is the opening because it's such a study in contrast, you know, um, it really breaks my heart. Uh, I acknowledge like a lot of the realities that you're talking about as well, but it's like, when can we get what we actually want, you know? And I, I, that's really, uh, there's a lot of grief there, you know, and like sadness and, um, frustration. And like, you really understand why a lot of people disengage with the system and, um, and, you know, disengagement only perpetuates, the problems and like getting us further away from what we want. But, um, but yeah, you, you really understand. Yeah. Grief is really an interesting word to describe this. Cause I mean, a, like our lives are just so filled with it at the moment from a variety of places, but you know, I do grieve for like what could have been. And also that like, and I think that this is what kind of leads to apathy or disengagement is just kind of like, there's no good choices. The best, the best case scenario I can hope for is bullshit, you know? <laughs> and I think that that is like, it's a really easy place to get to and stay. Um, but I think that like a thing that helps me get out of that is like, the, like recognizing the stakes. So I think that we can kind of, I mean, we've seen them so starkly. Like, I think that how I felt after, you know, Biden won Super Tuesday or whatever. And I was just like, you know what? I'll, I'll, I will strike my vote against Trump, but like, that's all you're getting out of me, you know? And I, and I, and I'm like, and you should say thank you because that is really hard. (laughs) Um, But what's happened in the interim is like everything else. And now I'm like, it is not enough. Just hold my nose because the, and I, I hate to traumatize this in this way, but like 
what would it really mean to you guys for, and I think this is honestly the, the most honest way I can frame this is like, imagine four more years of Trump. Like imagine what, like what are the stakes in your guys' minds? To like, because you know, like, that's all I can really focus on is like, that is what's important because that can't happen. I think climate change is. <laughs> yeah, we're just like, oh I'm God. Exhausted. I'm exhausted <laughs> even thinking about it. Right, it's like, how, what road do you go down? Because there's so many and he just gets further and further entrenched, like down. Uh, <laughs> I mean, really quite literally like fascism and like, and like murder yeah. and like mass death. Not that that's um, not already happening in many places and in many ways, but like he's an incompetent fascist. And, and I think that we're, uh, there's real stakes here um, for, for the country, for its people, like, and the world. Like, I mean, just like fascism, like nasty, cruel. That feels like the stakes, not to be dramatic, but like what- It's literally, it's gotten to the point of, it's, it's literally existential. Mm -hmm. like America may not survive in a recognizable format if this occurs. So, you know, I don't think it's hyperbole at all to be like, this place might be destroyed. And I, I will say that like the only thing that keeps me, um, keeps me sane or like keeps me going is focusing on all of the people across the country who have stepped up to run for office or to try and change things in their own communities who feel the same way that like that we do. And I will say that having the privilege and the opportunity to work for them and with them um, is the only thing that gives me hope because you just see that there's a groundswell of people coming up. You know, there really and truly is a groundswell of people in local and state elected office who have said, fuck this, you know, I-, right. I Not that. today. You know, exactly. not on my you shall not pass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, truly there is. And so, I mean, if people are really having trouble getting behind Biden and, um, and, and voting for him, I, I understand. And if it's not the stakes that those stakes that do, do it for you, you know, I would encourage people to find somebody closer to home that is someone that they believe in and to work hard as hell for that person because every single voter that you turn out for that candidate is more likely to vote up the ticket than people who just turn out for the presidential race will vote down the ticket. So turning out people on the local and the state level um, is one way that you can help Joe Biden um, indirectly because pe because those people will vote up. And I want to get more into that because that seems like really good tactical kind of strategy about like how to get people out. I want Brandy to have a chance to define in her mind the stakes because I feel like she had some things to say <laughs> and then we can get to, you know, our <sighs> let's, let's figure out how to do this. So please Brandy. I mean, I think it's every generation, I think, feels like it's their generation, right? That like is dealing with the highest stakes thing and that it's, you know, there's always a moment in, in your life where you die. But I mean, if you look at the facts of like what is going on, I mean, leaving aside just the very problematic issues that 
you know, and ways that he goes about governing that just kind of throws out all president and like representative government principles. Like we are at a time right now with climate change that like is do or die. And if the, we do not make serious investments like right now to those changes, you know, it's, I think that the results are going to be terrible. I mean, and that's every scientist has told us that for, you know, irrevocable. <laughs> over a generation, almost a generation now. And I mean, and I, and again, and then we can talk about, when we get into the conversation about more about getting behind Biden, I think it's about talking about some of those issues and bringing him along. Cause I'm not saying that he's a perfect candidate on that either, but that's one of the things that I look at, you know, and a lot of people, particularly young people see as like the, you know, the issue of their generation. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. And he has no intention of, I think, doing anything to fix anything related to that. And this is not a climate change episode, so I don't want to get too deep into this, but like you, we do have the good fortune of having someone working in the disaster preparedness space whose whole career is spent looking at the kind of detritus left after these climate change in some ways um, impacted disasters. Like, can you just paint a picture of like just how dire the circumstances are, if you could briefly? Sure. So, I mean, every this year is predicted to be a terrible natural disaster season. Twenty seventeen was like an unprecedented disaster season, and the cost, um, the frequency, the intensity of natural disasters are just like unprecedented in you know our recorded history at this point, due to what's happening with the climate. And we, you know, what I deal with is like the immediate aftermath of those natural disasters and dealing with communities who, you know, I work in the federal funding space where you see kind of how that plays out on the most vulnerable populations and how they continue to exacerbate inequities. So with natural disasters, which are caused in part, you know, and have gotten so severe because of climate change, we're then also seeing like how they impact adversely communities that are least prepared to handle them. And so, um, and also like how those federal policies kind of trickle down to communities in and have adverse impacts because of the way we've designed them. So um, it's going to continue to get worse there. I do, I do take heart though and hope in that fact that we are moving towards like resilience and adaptation strategies that really are going to make communities better and, um, and more prepared, but that's slow going and that's like gonna take decades to do. And the best thing to really stem the crisis is to change how we, you know, um, handle the built environment and, you know, alternative energy sources and all of those things. Um, and I just think that's, you know, one of the most foundational things we can do from a systemic way to also help communities be more equitable too. And that's what's so cool and promising about it because it could be the source from which we actually deal with the racial equality legacy as well in this country. Um, and again, I could talk forever about that. But sure. but I think that that sets us really well up for kind of like, this is what the stakes are, but also like this is, these are the areas where we have a lot more opportunity to kind of push a Biden presidency than a Trump one. I mean, Trump could not be trying to make, I mean, it's almost, it's ghastly, you know, how much he is trying to underplay the importance of this and, and how many, and how he drives resources to industries that are fighting 
the, you know, even recognition of this crisis. So um, I think what are some other areas where we think that, I mean, obviously, like, there's almost no areas that Trump would be better. I can't think of one. Um, uh, if you do, you know, send me a text message. Let's not even talk about it on this. <laughs> but like, what are other areas where we feel like it's important to have a Biden presidency? And I think this kind of opens the door for us to talk about why people can get excited. It's like, what opportunities in this administration, even let's say he's not ever signaled that he's like the go-to the go guy on this. Um, climate change is one of them. Um, what are some others? Guns is, is a huge one. Um, gun violence prevention is, um, Joe Biden has act, was the author of um, the Brady background checks bill in 1993. Um, he co-authored the assault weapons ban. Um, uh, I think he has come a long way in thinking of gun violence pre prevention as an intersectional issue that has ties to um, other issues that he's been very problematic on in the past. But he does on his website um, now has adopted a platform specifically on gun violence in communities of color that is um, an intervention, uh, funding community intervention programs. Um, so to the tune of $900 million, which is $900 million more than they're getting right now. So uh, I, I, you know, double check me on that specific stat, but I, I'm not aware of federal funding for these programs at this moment in time. Um, and so, uh, I think that that is a huge, huge piece of policy and like harm reduction, um, you know, for our communities. And I, I think that that's something why uh, gun violence prevention groups got behind Biden as soon as it sort of after South, after South Carolina, because they did see sort of the winds shifting and they were like, you know, he's, he's good on our issue. He's really good on our issue. Brandy, do you have any kind of like policy areas that you're excited to kind of um, see Biden get pushed toward or that maybe he's already embraced? Because I feel like that's the other, the other lack of knowledge is like, what is Biden good about, you know? Yeah. I, th I mean, what I, more like broader about what's happening right now, I think with kind of the racial justice movement, um, I think also that what is happening at the ground swelling of like at very grassroots level is going to just inevitably push him on certain issues that he otherwise I don't think would be entertaining, you know, a serious conversation about defunding the police and, you know, things like that and just dealing with like the mass incarceration issues. So the extent to which that conversation and that movement continues to happen everywhere in this country, I think that's going to have to move him on those topics. And he's going to have to, you know, and I think he recognizes like what, you know, I think it's pretty well documented, like what the results of his, you know, policies uh, related to that in the 90s from dating back to the 70s, like have had. And so, you know, related to the gun reform issue, um, he, I think, will definitely I think he, he's already coming around to that and like he will have policy stance there. I think going back to climate change, I think that he also, there's a lot of things that he did do as vice president under Obama that related to um, meaningful reform and kind of policy and legislation and like support of alternative energy um, and mainstreaming all of that, that I think we'll see that he'll also support as president. 
Um, but also we have to recognize that he's still accepting contributions from the fossil fuel industry. But at the same time, the fossil fuel industry is also, I think, also recognizing that they've got to move from where they're at because of a lot of larger, like, trends and shifts um, that's happening to their fundamental business model. But I mean, that's like, you know, it's making him accountable um, to those issues when he is elected. But I think he can be moved on those. Yeah, I mean, I think that like, he does exist in the world. And I think another, uh, I guess it's not really a policy area, but I think that another opportunity for leverage is kind of who he, who he makes part of his own administration. Right. And I think that like we, what we haven't discussed on this yet. And I think that we can briefly touch upon it here is his vice president, you know, like how important is it going to be to kind of gain support with who he is on the ticket with? I mean, there's a lot of kind of, uh, you know, off track betting about like who, what woman, what woman of color he's going to pick. How do you, how much do you think that's going to impact his support? Like, does it matter even? Cause like part of me is like, honestly, we want it to be someone great, but like, it truly doesn't matter. You know, I guess there's a difference between it. Like I'm going to vote for him no matter what. And Oh wow. I can actually get excited now because he's a, you know, pick someone I never would have expected. I think he could pick somebody that would motivate people to get more excited about his campaign. But, and, and if he's willing to take a little bit of like a leap, um, and then, but I don't think that anybody who's supporting him now, he can make some decision that would not get, that would lead them to not be behind him. I mean, given the slate of like who he's looking at, but it would be exciting if he chose someone like Stacey Abrams or somebody like that who could really, you know, activate things in a different way or just a woman, you know, like that would be historic. I have some, a few worries about, um, I think that, Kamala Harris is a very good match for him in so many ways, but I don't know that choosing a, a person who is the, a cop, like the lead cop for the state of California um, right now is, is uh, the move to shore up the base, shall we say? Like it doesn't totally feel like the move, but um, I, you know, to your point, I think that if he's, if he's smart, he'll look at not just the impact of a person on the campaign, but on uh, their ability to support him in governing because there's just like so much work to be done, um, like so much damage to repair and to heal. And um, I just think that, uh, you know, whoever it is that he picks, I hope he doesn't just choose them for the with the election in mind. I hope he like has a an eye towards towards actually who can meet this moment and help him do the job. You know, and like the, right, and it's going to be a big job for the vice president. Honestly, like think about the the. I mean, obviously there was policy stuff that he did that like I don't think everyone's aware of. I'm not even aware of. But one thing he did do well as vice president is like representing the administration, going to the places where like the most fuck shit was happening, and being like. Mm -hmm. this is bad and like here's who I am and like I am here and like I'm listening and like we are listening and I think if you think about it in that context like it, Kamala becomes an even worse figure you know it's like let's send in an ex-cop to go talk to broken black communities is like not 
I didn't even think about the aspect of like her as vice president standing in for Biden, who people aren't excited about. Now we actually have someone who like maybe in some ways we're less excited about. So that's, that is actually kind of interesting. Um, well, I guess now we're at the stage where like, how can people get not just okay with, but excited? I think that one of the points you made, Sarah, that I want to get back to now is that, you know, because of the horrors that we've lived through at this point, I mean, that we've lived through so far, um, people are saying like enough is enough and I don't, I guess it's going to have to be me, you know? And I think that that is an encouraging move because a lot of people who would never have thought of themselves as politicians and, you know, given what we have required of them, they aren't. Um, but a lot of people are stepping up and kind of taking ownership of like making change happen. And so I think that that's something that we can talk a little bit more about here as a, as a reason to not just do it, but get excited because it's those people who then become the future Bidens. And then we'll have like actually a, a much more rich kind of diverse array of, you know, tight options. Hopefully future their own, not Biden, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, to, to your, to the point of this. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. There's just so many amazing, amazing people. I mean, I think of um, Robin Vining in Wisconsin. Um, I think of, Anita Earls on the state Supreme Court in North Carolina, um, you know, or Ana Maria Ramos in the state ledge of Texas. Like there are really wonderful leaders um, and people that won't, um, that are, are closer to their communities and like more closely tied to the problems that we see on a day to day basis. And um, the impact of state ledge and of local law on uh on our communities cannot be overstated i mean you look at what uh zoning and housing and homelessness policy in the state of california and in the city of la and uh you know it's bad it's very very bad and we think that we are progressive here in this city and in this state but we have a very serious um humanitarian crisis on our hands that that our local leaders have not been able to solve yet. And I think that we need to hold them accountable for that. So, I mean, look at who's on our city council right now, like, um, and look at who's running for our city council right now. Yeah, like, like half of them are under indictment. Holy, <laughs> like those fuckers should go to jail, you know, like, ugh, Some of them are going. That. Yeah, I've read it already. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, that's the place to find hope, you know, like is, is, is something closer to home, you know? Yeah, I mean, Brandy, I see you inhaling. <laughs> I, I think there's like two ways to continue like support to support Biden is to really like again hold him accountable through because you know someone asked me like who would you consider kind of the, the leader of like what's going on with the racial justice movement or something and I'm like I don't think there is really a leader I, and that's what's so exciting about it it's like it's a movement of ideas that are super like foundational and awesome and. I think there's also like a play to continue like on two tracks, right? Like support Joe Biden, but also continue to support the like fundamental reforms and changes that a lot of people are really getting excited about and marry that with, you know, not this cult of personality, but about this movement of ideas and how we can like bring that together to have his campaign represent that 
you know, and get, and get there. And I think like, you know, and I read about his platform before this, cause I, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on Joe Biden at all by any measure, but I, I see a lot of hope in that and that, you know, and I, again, I think he's super receptive to have like prided himself his entire career and being kind of a collaborator, you know, cross aisle guy, a person who will recognize like when a good idea is in front of him. And so that gives me hope. But I think that we can't abandon, you know, the fundamental sea shift in like exercising values that we are, that all of us maybe have, but didn't have language for until recently, or didn't have like the right policy ideas to explain that's what's wrong about this like current system. And that's how we fix it. So like, I think that you have to continue on two tracks, like getting behind him and pushing forward with the really great, like amazing, innovative ideas that we're starting to see that like, if they could actually be implemented, could be so fundamentally um, changed our entire way that our society is ordered and how we value wealth and and people and how we organize our like neighborhoods and things like that. And I think also to what Sarah was saying, I think it's also an interesting point about just the fundamental business of administration of government. So what Trump has done is I think really shown those kind of the some of the failures of how our federal government just actually does the work of governing. And he's shown that you can just gut it like so like remarkably easily while, you know, while we're all there looking and it's just been completely unchecked. And so one thing that I think, you know, Biden with eight years of being a vice president under his belt and not just a congressman making laws for decades has is that he understands to Sarah's point, like, what that looks like and what that work is in front of us and how do we really repair the bureaucracy. And I use that word actually like in its most positive connotation, like because there are really amazing like public servants that have had a really hard job, job, like hard time doing their job because of what's happened the last four years and they're just there to serve. And so what I think is another reason to have hope is that he understands that and can kind of bring back and maybe and make it better because I don't think it was working that well before. It's a it can be, represent a fundamental realignment of like how we actually do the work of governing at the federal level, and how again to go back to the defund the police movement, which is also as at its essential core about giving power back to local and state communities and governments and getting the federal funding out of the way that has been so remarkably ruinous in some cases to communities. Um, and that I think, again, he understands in some ways because of his past mistakes um, and sins in this regard. So it's, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> it is. Cause I mean, you see these memes that are like, you know, you want the person who caused the problem to get you out of the problem, which I definitely understand the logic behind that. But I think if we can pressure him to take ownership of his mistakes, which I don't, I haven't seen, a, I haven't seen enough of that, to be honest. No. I mean, I, if Joe Biden were to stand up and give a, a just a, a coherent speech, but <laughs> a speech also that said, look, Let's get real about the things that I've done and my record and the mistakes that I've made that we're seeing they've played out now they're for all to see and I'm sorry and part of my presidency will be about 
getting real about what the fuck happened and what we needed. I'm not perfect. I need you guys to kind of support me so that we can even get laws passed that would help to remedy some of these things. I think that honestly, like that would go such a long way, um, especially in the face of like an administration that has like run like Usain Bolt away from truth and facts and accountability and responsibility. Like, I think there's a lot of people who'd be like, you know what? I don't like all he's done, but I can respect that. And I think that hopefully something like that does occur. But even if it doesn't, I think that something that I would encourage people to do is just like, just get engaged however you want. I think that like disengagement is what's allowed what's happening to happen. And I Mm -hmm. think that even if all we do is like, look, I don't even care if you vote for Biden, please do vote for president because we really need to have a different president. But think about what you do care about and get excited about that. Because I think if you can spark just a little bit of excitement in someone about something, it's like a hell of a lot easier to get them to do the things that they're less excited to do. Um, And you know that whether that's volunteering for a campaign, that seems like a lot. Voting is obviously the least of what you can do. I think that like what has been really... um, what's given me hope in this period of like tumultuousness is that so many people have hit these streets and have stayed on these streets, you know? And I'm like, and a lot of those people don't vote. And that's the weird dichotomy, right? The duality. It's like, you have so many people here doing so much work on every platform they have in these streets, fighting, fighting against things that seem like completely uh, kind of intractable. And so it's like, take just a fraction of that energy and put it towards a sea change in electoral politics. So that's kind of what I have to contribute. I like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a profound point. I feel like um, the, the expectations have changed too. Like I think people um, over the years of the Trump presidency and then most recently in um, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, like people have realized that it's no longer, um, I think before they they didn't know that it was expected of them to participate. Uh, White people, frankly, like white, comfortable, privileged white people, like didn't know that it was their fight to fight. And I think that there's an expectation that's shifted, like a social um, norm that's shifted around or or that's you know it's not a an end there's never an end to this process but it is a you know it is a process um and i think that it is shifting uh about what you expect of your average everyday white person um and engagement and engagement in the process and uh is is i think the difference that that you expressed Trey, is that you're just seeing not just Black people on the streets, like you're seeing Black Lives Matter protests and all sorts of places that don't have any Black people, which right. is remarkable and and hopeful, you know, and like encouraging and like, does it bear out? Does it bear fruit? Like, you know, that those are all good questions, but I think it's certainly a start and it's been a change in expectations. And I think it's, and with that change in expectations has also been like, oh, you know, young person who is more likely to volunteer than vote, right? Like it's what you kind of have seen over the past few years. It's like, there's with that change in expectation and that awareness that this inaction to take part is actually a problem, a very problematic in and of itself. 
then you also are forced to reckon with the fact that if you don't participate in the electoral process, that is similarly um, is is not is problematic. And I think that was hard. It was harder to defend against the stands of somebody saying, I don't vote because it doesn't matter. And I think that is going away too. And that's like a, a, a an area of hope because if we actually had the the population that this country represents and all of its diversity voting, there'd be no way we'd have Trump in office and we would have most of the Republic, you know, the Republican base would not be present in our Congress. Like that's the demographic also reality of our country, which is also really coming together finally. And I think that gives us a lot of hope because it's just going to continue down that path in the next few years or, you know, it's here to stay. So if we can mobilize the vote, we actually have like a base of people that really represent the, you know, we haven't touched on all of the reforms and policies, but we're in general agreement. And I think edged around them, like they would actually become a reality. Yeah. I mean, we have the votes if they vote. Yeah, we have the votes. That's what's so exciting. I think. Um, okay. One thing about, um, I think that like when thinking about the reasons why people don't participate, um, there's, there's a fear or there, I think there's an assumption sometimes that voting, it, it feels a little bit like a test. Like you walk in, in line, they check you in, it's a scantron usually, and you choose and you hope that you're choosing correctly. And I think that people oftentimes feel like they're not informed enough, so they don't deserve to vote or they don't know how to make a choice. And so they, um, you know, don't think that, they have the right to make a choice or or they've tried to make that choice they've tried to vote in the past and it's felt hopeless to them and i think acknowledging that fear and that um that like you know i i remember uh in the one of the last municipal elections there was a sheriff election up and i voted for this candidate um uh Villanueva, who a bunch of like pro-reform groups were endorsing and were excited about because he said he was going to keep ICE out of the um, jails, et cetera, et cetera. He is a monster, like a true and actual monster, um, a liar, corrupt, um, a bad person. And I feel bad about that vote. Like, I feel bad. Like, I feel like I caused some harm, you know, with my vote there. And like, I think that recognizing that you know participation is certainly the first step but like allowing space for people to feel like um allowing space for that fear or that like uncertainty about what if i make the wrong choice like what what did i do wrong you know well i think yeah go ahead i said but that gets also sarah what you've been saying about the importance of like local and state politics like in Philadelphia, which is like, you know, a ward system, um, big Democratic Party stronghold, like the, the Democratic Party has like controlled, like who gets on the candidate slate, who get or who gets endorsed by the candidates. And like one of the fundamental reforms that has started to happen there. And when I was living there, I was a Democratic committee person was like completely overhauling the bylaws, getting away from that and saying like, we will go out, we went door to door to every single like voter and said, here's the slate, here's who we're endorsing separately and apart, had a whole democratic process from which to do that. And then in, went around and informed candidates, people that are informed voters, people who have never seen like who their democratic committee person was. And 
it's like really very small, small, like movements like that, that can then begin to have that, you know, groundswell of change to be like, I have now, you know, equipped voters with that knowledge. And I mean, and I'll, and that's happening. I mean, again, I think that's what's really also happening at the grassroots level is that people are recognizing the power of that. And then they can start to, um, you know, inform voters at the most, like the lowest, like, uh, candidate, you know, like judges that get elected in Philadelphia. And if you can start empowering voters that way, then they feel more confident to go up the slate and, and vote with confidence. But I think that's a like fundamental movement that has started to happen in my like little um, experience where I, you know, coming from Philadelphia. I mean, I think that one of the things that we can take away from this episode is the, even the idea of de- uh, up ballot voting. You know, we so talk about like, we need someone at the top that can like trickle down to all the other people. It's like, actually what we need is some people at the bottom and then hopefully they'll like look at the top and be like, fine, <laughs> you know? And that actually, cause like their lives will be much more readily impacted by those choices anyway. Well, I think that like we can conclude, um, this has been awesome. I actually do feel, dare I say like a, like a wink of hope and kind of optimism and excitement. I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunities to get people to get engaged and to kind of see past Biden into a future that is really compelling. So Thanks I really so appreciate you guys joining me. I, I can, I only know how active you guys will be in the next few months. So I got, I'm glad I got you now. So thank you very much. And then, uh, go Biden. Go Biden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unambiguously go Biden. I don't care. It's happening. So, uh, thank you guys so much. And I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.